0: Listeners, readers, I'm so glad you've tuned in. Welcome to the Fox page where we dive deep into the very best books. You'll come away with a better understanding of the text at hand all while learning to read everything a little better. As always, the lecture today will be presented in three parts. In the first part, we will talk about why I think it's a great idea that you read this book. We'll talk a bit about the biography of the author, and then we will dive into the text. In the second installment this time, we will be talking about structure and pacing. In the last part, in the last third of the uh, lecture, we'll be talking about character arc, humor, and then the close of the novel. So I've built a little suspense here because I did not tell you what novel we will be looking at for all of these. So I'm going to do a big reveal, which is today we are talking about Goodbye Vitamin by Rachel Kong. So this is a book that honestly I bought because I was in the bookstore and the cover was so appealing to me. It was just, it just called out to me. And then I got to the checkout and my trusty checkout guy who I know so well at my local independent bookstore, Kepler's, shout out to Kepler's Books in Menlo Park. um, They, he said it's selling like, he did not say hotcakes. That's what just popped into my head. But he said, it's really selling. So I thought, well, I gotta I gotta get uh, in touch with what everybody is reading. So um, we're gonna, with that, we were gonna just dive right into why I think, now having read the book, that I think you also should read the book. First of all, the cover is amazing. Um, the colors, these are not even my palette. Like this is not even usually, these are usually not colors that call out to me. And for whatever reason, they really did. I was intrigued by the title, itself. I also really enjoy this font. I enjoy this combination of fonts. I just everything about this was just really intriguing to me. Uh, But then I will say, as always, that I uh, wasn't going to purchase it until I read that first paragraph. And there is a third line in that first paragraph, which we will get to soon, uh, that sold me. I was like, okay, I'm in. I'm in, which is always an interesting, there's a little frison, a little little thing that happens when I'm reading where I know I'm really sucked in and the chances are very good that I will love the novel. And that is exactly what happened with Goodbye Vitamin. Uh, Okay. It was also, once I dug a little deeper, uh, it was named a best book of 2017. Apparently it came out a long time ago. Uh, Best, uh, oh, I bet it just came out in paperback though. It was the best book of the year in 2017 for NPR, for Oprah, whose taste I really enjoy in literature for the most part. The San Francisco Chronicle, Vogue magazine, of which I am a subscriber and a a longtime lover. Uh, And and just really, it did very well in that year. It was developed uh, into, well, it's going to be developed or it began development in 2021, which who knows where, you know, those pandemic era uh, projects lay. But it is, um, it is Constance Wu who is involved. I don't know if Constance Wu is acting or, or what role she has, but I'm really looking forward to more news about the adaptation of Goodbye Vitamin. So that's a good segue into our uh, bio of Rachel Kong. She's not someone I knew much about. She's a relatively, uh, you know, this sort of a debut novel for her, but uh, she was born in 1985, I believe in Malaysia. She has a a Malaysian Chinese family, uh, but she grew up in Rancho Cucamonga here in LA. It's 37, not here in LA, here in California. I'm, uh, I'm like 300 miles from LA, apparently. Rancho Cucamonga is 37 miles east of downtown Los Angeles, which I don't know why I have that written down so exactly here, but in case you're wondering, also Rancho Cucamonga is such an entertaining thing to say and hopefully to hear that you're enjoying hearing that Rancho Cucamonga is uh, 37 miles from downtown LA. So she studied English at Yale, smart, smart, Smart cookie by all, um, you know, by all kind of connotations of a Yale education. She then went on to get an MFA at the University of Florida, and she worked with Paget Powell, who is a writer. I have not read a lot of Paget Powell, but I do remember reading. I, I have a very positive association. You guys know I have a really, really bad memory, but I do have a, a very positive association with Paget Powell. It might be just because the name is so cool. I don't know if Paget Powell is a is a you know I don't know if that's a man or a woman. Doesn't matter. Um, but I I do I actually think maybe Paget Powell was involved with McSweeney's with that whole thing because um, Rachel Kong married Eli Horowitz, who is one of uh, he was a former editor at McSweeney's. So those of you who don't know McSweeney's, it's one of these very erudite, kind of very brainy, uh, very hip. At least it was, um, you know, maybe 10 years ago. I don't even know if it still exists, but it's kind of that Dave Eggers, very um, postmodern, kind of very hip literary magazine era. And Eli Horowitz was involved uh, with that and is now married to Rachel Kong. In 2011, uh, Rachel Kong moved to San Francisco and was the magazine uh, editor, I believe, of Lucky Peach, which is the magazine for Momofuku, which is a very famous uh, restaurant if you don't know it in San Francisco. In 2018, I was interested to learn that in 2018, Rachel uh, founded a, um, a workspace, a co-worker space that was women centered in the mission district in San Francisco called the Ruby, which I love that. I think probably her timing was maybe not what it could have been because setting up a co-worker space in 2018. I mean, maybe at the very beginning, she had a good couple of years. I don't really know, but I'm actually very happy that she didn't just decide to become a, um, you know, a runner of a co-working space because my guess is that she really focused on her writing and turned out. Oh, actually, she had already published this book by 2017. But um, regardless, I'm just very happy she wrote this book because it is excellent. Okay, we're going to dive in. So um, this, again, the cover is really, uh, really alluring to me. I have in my notes here, you know, I'm a big fan of the Kardashians and I have in my notes, all capitals, Khloe Kardashian next to blurbs, which I don't remember what that means. I actually pulled this lecture together a few weeks ago and I have no idea why I have Khloe Kardashian written there. I imagine because I follow Chloe on Instagram. I'm imagining maybe she uh, maybe she endorsed this book, which I don't think of the Kardashians as being like a real literary light uh, in the darkness, but I also think maybe that's what that was. So, a uh, bit of a mystery there, but the rest of the blurbs are very impressive. We have Miranda July weighing in, who's an incredible writer. Uh, we also have Lauren Groff. So she's got some real, uh, she's got some real heavy-duty writers who are endorsing her writing and this book in particular. I also really love the title. Uh, so goodbye, vitamin. When you have goodbye and then the comma. Vitamin. It is. It means that you are addressing a vitamin. So it, it's a it's a punctuation mark that I love here because it really. I mean, I, I think everybody intuits that, but it's important to recognize that it's it's like goodbye, vitamin. You know, you're you're anthropomorphizing the vitamin. You're you're making it. You're sort of giving it the. You're giving it ears. You're giving it the capability of hearing you say goodbye to it, um, which I loved. And in my mind, I was like, who is this vitamin? Is this vitamin? Is there a person in the book named Vitamin? Because that would be amazing. Uh, is it? Is it a? Is it a vitamin? Vitamin? You know, I, it was a very intriguing title to me. Really um, unusual, and and I think really captivating. There there are trends in titles, you know, like the Shoemaker's Wife, or you know, the, there there were all those things with like the the definite article the, and then some sort of possessive noun, and then another noun. Um, I'm, I'm happy that trend seems to be maybe. I don't know i mean it's still it's still out there for sure but i'm really appreciative of the unique nature of goodbye vitamin it was one of the reasons why i picked this book up and and decided to read the first paragraph um importantly also we when we think about vitamin if you are paying attention as i will tell you is the most important thing for reading you know as well as you can read uh we should know what a vitamin is i think everyone knows like essentially what vitamins are But i uh, took it a bit further and what i will tell you is in my sleuthing in my uh, chemistry that i was doing uh i learned that vitamins are necessary compounds but they are not synthesized by the body which i think is so interesting uh so if you are a really great writer and you have a great title like this it's going to carry nuance and in fact it does here so i love this idea of of these vitamins which we're gonna look at the actual, you know, when this phrase comes up in the novel. Um, It's very impactful if you also are thinking about the fact that a vitamin is a very necessary compound, but it is not, it has to be taken in. It's not organically part of the body. Um, Also really made me feel like I gotta get that vitamin B. I gotta get the D, the A, the K, the E, the fat soluble ones. Like I gotta, I gotta really do the vitamins because apparently you cannot synthesize them in your body. I mean D with the sun, but that's that's kind of a different thing. I also uh, took a quick little Latin etymological journey with vitamin and realized that vitamin, so vita comes from the Latin for life. And uh, amine is, uh, it's it's an ending, it's an English ending, which means acid. It's like a chemistry thing. So uh, Latin, so the Latin together with that, that chemical ending basically means the acid of life. So th- there's a certain um, importance that is being imbued or is being sort of, um, you know, th- this word vitamin is imbued with this importance, which is just a beautiful nuance to, to carry forward as we look at the novel. Okay, so we're going to look at the first instance of this phrase. Goodbye, vitamin. I love it when titles, when they pop up verbatim in a text. It's just like talk about a frisson. It's very it's very satisfying for me Um, on page four here up at the top. There's a little space break. And then our narrator says on my way to the bathroom, I catch my mother shouting, no, 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 you're expensive to a vitamin. She's dropped ginkgo, I think. So we don't know this yet, but it's going to become very important, this idea of ginkgo. So ginkgo, I did a little more, um, you know, archaeological digging here. It turns out ginkgo is a living fossil, which I don't even really know what that means, but it sounds very cool. It also speaks, I think, to longevity. It speaks to uh, a tradition of Chinese medicine because ginkgo biloba is one of those like ancient and very effective. I mean, a lot of those herbs are very effective. I don't know if ginkgo biloba is as, as effective as uh As the trend, like a decade ago, would have you believe, but it is one of those very well-known ancient remedies, which I think we we carry on because they are effective. Uh, It it is very importantly an aid for memory. So it's you know this is a book that is very very occupied with the idea of memory, not only of, of retaining our memories and losing our memories, but also of making memory. So this idea of ginkgo biloba. In this case ginkgo is very important here and i love this introduction to the mom this idea of the mom the triple no here uh that has an exclamation mark no 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 it's it's exactly that you know you can you cannot read this dialogue without reading it correctly like with that kind of urgency that like no 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 that 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 kind of a thing um and this you're expensive um, another exclamation mark! I love again this anthropomorphizing of the vitamin. She's losing something th- that she feels she can speak to, something that is again sort of turned into something that can hear, that's sentient. So th- this this um, importance of it, but also the mother as being somewhat frugal and as um, having a sense of humor, as being someone who is you know talking out loud to to vitamins so we have that on page four and then really beautifully toward the end of the novel on 172 we have another instance of the vitamin and of this exact phrase popping back up again and it's really beautiful because this is the father so first we had the mother at the beginning and now we have the father at the end it's this really beautiful balance for this not only for our narrator ruth but also for the reader because this is a marriage uh, we will find soon that is a little on the rocks and it's, you know, heading toward, you know, just sort of degeneration because this, the, 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 father, the husband is losing his memory. Um, but, but there is this nice sense of, of the book being anchored by the mother and the father. So on page 172 today, you held your open hand out and I shook the pills into it. Same as every day, fish oil, magnesium, vitamins D, C, and A, ginkgo biloba. Hello, water, you said, holding the glass against the moonlight and shaking the pills like they were dice you were ready to roll in your other hand. Goodbye, vitamin. So I love this so much. I love the fact that, um, that they're doing this together. At this point in the novel, the mother, I mean, the father and the daughter have really, um, really throughout the novel you see this very nice kind of coming together for the two of them that's really very sweet and and she's doing a lot of different things with him and and she's taking on this caretaking role but at this point he's still he's still funny he's still witty and i love this hello water goodbye vitamin for my money, it's a little bit too far. There's a little bit too much text in between the two. I think when you read it, you, it, it's more because of how it shows on the page, the paragraph begins with hello water and ends with goodbye vitamin. And this is a paragraph that has space breaks before and after. So visually, they really balance each other. I think when you read it aloud, there's quite a bit of text in the middle, uh, which which kind of has you lose this idea of hello water goodbye vitamin, but there's also a very nice resonance because of the moonlight. There, There's a little echo of like, goodbye, the goodbye uh, moon book, which I think a lot of us are familiar with and, and, and goodbye anything, especially tied together with the moonlight is going to, uh, you know, with a father daughter context is going to evoke that kind of nice kind of fairy tale feel or picture book feel. I also love this detail of him holding the, the vitamins and shaking them in his hand as if they were dice. I mean, this is a book that is very much about how unpredictable the beginning stages of Alzheimer's is and how you can have a good day, you can have a bad day, you can have what seems like a precipitous decline, you can have plateaus. So this idea of of, of rolling the dice is very apt and it's the kind of detail that really brings these two to life. It's. I was just absolutely just kind of marveling at the way she brought the father figure to life. He's someone who's really flawed. I mean, he's someone who has not been faithful. He's not been particularly, uh, you know, sort of respectful of the mother. They, there have been a lot of divisions and some strife. And, and you know, he is someone who seems to be, um, you know, sort of philandering with women who are much younger than he is. So there, there are all sorts of reasons why we could really see him as deeply flawed which he is in those ways. And yet he ends up being so sympathetic and part of it is the the descriptions that we receive from our narrator, Ruth. Uh, Okay, we are going to go back to the beginning of the book. That was all about the title. Everything we've talked about so far is just about the title. So we're gonna go back. Um, We're not gonna look at the blurbs other than just mark the fact that they are very impressive. And then we are coming to this dedication the dedication says, for my parents. So it's interesting um, that Rachel Kong in an interview that I listened to was, she's really articulate and had some very interesting things to say about first person narration as a woman. And I think that this dedication to her parents, this this dedication here for my parents, there is to me, uh, I think she is inviting a little bit of this idea of conflating Rachel and Ruth. There's also the name, you know, there's a little bit of they're both biblical. Ruth, by the way, means like pitiful despair. It also means friend or friendship or compassionate person. But Ruth is, I mean that's a that is a bummer. Like that is a name that is uh, I mean this is a this is a person, our narrator, Ruth, really is, you know, she's at kind of a pitiful moment in her life. Uh, she and her doctor friend, you know, there's a lot of talking about sort of how low can she get and different strategies for sort of bringing herself up after this breakup that she's had. So the idea of Ruth as being a name that is synonymous with grief and, and pitifulness is so apt. I also really, again, I like the kind of resonance with the biblical stuff, but I will say that Ruth and Rachel do, in, in my mind, they are inviting the kind of conflation that, that you sort of, you know, in my mind, I think we feel like we know Rachel Kong and she resisted that in the interview. What she said when the interviewer said to her, um, you said that Ruth was an exaggerated version of yourself and it was awesome because Rachel kind of pushed back and was like, not so much. Like she literally said not so much. And then she said that the novel that she wrote was born out of a breakup that she was suffering at, at that time, but, Uh, She never moved home to her family. By the way, I'm filming this in my daughter's bedroom. Oh, and I'm also, for those of you who are watching the lecture, I um, am wearing a a little dress that I knitted. I did not knit it up for this book, although the green of this dress, it's like a dark, dark jade kind of green. It is, um, for some reason, it really spoke to me. I was thinking it was looking good with the title, I mean, with the cover art, but I, in my mind, the cover art was green, not this kind of turquoise. But oh well, here we are. Um, so I'm in my daughter's room because, uh, well, she's not gonna move home. She lives in New York City, she loves it. She's, I mean, I don't know if she's ever coming back to California. Um, this person, our Ruth and our Rachel, both went East for college. I, I, I actually don't know that Ruth went East, but she came at least up to Northern California and then ended up back in Southern California. So this is, this is someone who has come back to California, back to her roots, but Rachel, as opposed to Ruth, never moved back in with her family. She does not have a father who has Alzheimer's, although her grandmother did uh, have Alzheimer's. And I think a lot of the book is based on on her grandmother's sort of decline. She is not mixed race. So a lot of the book is is not, it's not preoccupied, but there is a really beautiful subtext about the mixed race experience in the United States. And and again, that is not something uh, that Rachel herself personally experienced And she is not an ultrasound technician and never has been. I really enjoyed that. And actually it was a great profession for uh, Rachel to choose for our character Ruth because of some of the symbolism that we're going to take a look at. Okay. Uh, Oh, and the interesting thing that Rachel said in that interview, there are many interesting things, but one of them was that her feeling is that women in particular are uh, sort of subject to that kind of conflation. That when when readers are reading a book by a woman author and it is in the first person and it is a woman narrator, that the temptation to conflate author and narrator is stronger with women. And I think, I think there's some truth in that. My, my kind of nuance that I would lay over that is the fact that our, our kind of default, which has been the case for millennia, I think, unfortunately, um, ha- has been that the, the sort of the the generic narrator, for the most part, is is sort of male. I mean, I think we think of the generic. You know, if you're reading a newspaper article and someone pressed you to say, you know, who's writing this, it's it, that sort of um, very. You know, uh, writing that's supposed to be very kind of anodyne and and um, you know with an invisible narrator. That invisible narrator, in fact, has a very distinct you know verbiage and a very distinct syntax. And I think it is the syntax and the vocabulary of like an educated white dude. So I think when you have a woman writing, there is a temptation because it's a different and a woman narrating. Both of those things happening, there is a sense of it being different enough that that the reader's sort of focusing on what, you know, w- w- like whether or not there is that conflation and, and whether or not, also maybe because women, if you're talking about a domestic novel like this, where a lot of it is happening in the home, a lot of it is about domestic activities, a lot of it is about family, which are themes that I think for, for better and for worse, for worse and worse, we associate with women in the home but i love i love that idea i love the fact that she brought up this this notion that women are sort of more often subjected to this kind of conflation okay now we're going to finally dive in our timing is perfect here we're going to dive in to the first page so when we open uh to the text itself it's there's no kind of subtitles there's no i mean not subtitles like subheadings and no chapter titles It, it just goes straight from the dedication for my parents to the text itself. And we begin with December 26th. And true to form, I skipped right over that. I don't know what it is about my brain. I think I'm just so hungry to get to the text. Um, But that was my bad because it's actually very significant. December 26th, of course, being the day after Christmas. And I mean, I actually have a godchild whose birthday it is after that's the birthday of of this godson of mine. And it is a bummer like the 26th of December I mean as you're, as a parent you're psyched as a parent you're just like whoo you know but as a, a well for all of us it's it's not it's not a great day you know it's a, there's all that let down after the holidays or you're exhausted or you're so tired of your family or whatever the thing is so it's starting with a day that's actually really inauspicious it's it's a bummer of a day so and and kind of universally so i, I mean as long as you're talking about a book in this sort of judeo christian or not even Judeo, in the Christian uh, world, or at least in the United States. I mean, honestly, there's so much hubbub around Christmas that I think uh, most people are not totally immune to December 26th. So, we and then we dive right into this story in a way that I really did find so compelling. Tonight, a man found dad's pants in a tree lit with Christmas lights. The stranger called and said, I have some pants belonging to a Howard Young well shit i said i put the phone down to verify that dad was home and had pants on he was and did yesterday on mom's orders i'd written his name and our number in permanent marker onto the tags of all his clothes apparently what he's done in protest is pitched the numbered clothing into trees up and down euclid his slacks and shirts hanging from the branches The downtown trees have their holiday lights in them, and this man who called while driving noticed the clothes illuminated. This is such a strong opening. I mean, it's really, it's very, very good. So a couple of things that I love right away, this tonight is such it's such a kind of bold way to start a a novel, the whole entire thing. Because it's so immediate and we know that we're in the present tense. We know that this is a story that is being told, you know, we're being dropped right into like the action of this, which is really, it, it's um, promising a lot. And she actually delivers, which is impressive because it is a domestic novel about a father's decline from Alzheimer's, like, it, you know, on paper, it's a little hard to understand how you're going to be dropped into something that's really like full of action, not that taking care of a parent is not full of drama. It is, uh, but but it's a drama that I think has to be very carefully curated or else it's just so yucky <laughs> to hear about. So this idea of tonight, and and tonight a man found dad's pants. So I love the capitalization of the dad here because what that means is it's like, it's her dad. You know, she's, she's but if she said my dad and it were a lower case, there would be much more distance between the reader so um i think you understand what i'm saying when she says um a man found dad's pants it's as if she's talking either to a family member or a very close friend i mean even a close friend you might say a guy found my dad's pants but if you say a guy found dad's pants it's like that person is really on the inner circle which is um I mean i think you've maybe done that thing with a sibling where you'd be like i talked to my mom this morning and then you have to laugh because you're like it's also your siblings mom it's the reverse of that it's it's not you know alienating yourself it's it's creating incredible intimacy just with a capital i mean that is the miracle of of grammar really so tonight a man found dad's pants in a tree lit with christmas lights so there's also an absurdity that we're getting right from the top that is so indicative of what we are going to find. And it's humor and it's pathos. It's like the perfect beginning to to what we are going to explore throughout the work. So the stranger called, I love this evocation of the stranger right away. Um, it's not a neighbor, it's not um, you know a man, it's a stranger because there is this idea of, of people becoming strange, uh, whether it's because of a romantic breakup or whether it's because you have Alzheimer's and you are losing all of your memories. So this idea of estrangement or if your husband's cheating on you and you need some space from him, all of, all of that causes estrangement. So the idea of stranger right up at the top is just genius. It's subtle, but it is so good. Okay, and then um, I the, the way that she does the interrogatives in that, that sentence, I have some pants belonging to a Howard Young. It's, again, there's no way to read that. Like the very best dialogue is such that any way you read it, you can't read it wrong. Like there's only one way to read it, and it's the perfect way. So the fact that it's this double interrogative here is exactly the way somebody would call and just be like, "I have some pants belonging to Howard Young." The important thing here too. So Howard means brave heart, which is, I mean, for my money, it's kind of, or in my opinion, it's kind of a not awesome name. I hope your name is not Howard. Uh, but but. but once i found out it meant braveheart not only was that more significant and and i think there's some irony here because yes this man is sort of bravely facing his diagnosis but also he's a man who um is is requiring a lot of courage by the people around him you know all of the the, the graduate students who create the class and all of the the sort of good cheer on the part of his family all of that is is a lot of courage on the people around him also he's kind of a cad and and kind of a rake I'm really digging up some old terms here, but um, n- n- not really a brave heart so much as like a, like a guy who's sneaking around on his wife, which is shitty. Okay, and then um, young also is very important because he, this is a disease that is associated with aging. So you have this idea of a brave heart who is young when in fact, this is someone who is becoming, will become not less brave, but like isn't gonna be able to be markedly brave and is definitely someone who is not super young but the next line was the one that sold me. I was already, you know, at this point when I was reading it, standing in the bookstore, I was like, "Hmm, this first paragraph's pretty great. And then the well shit, I said, so good. I mean, it's just, it says so much about the attitude of this person, everything about this person, about how they're thinking about the situation, about their, uh, some levity, but also like, like they're going to be a little profane and they're going to be honest and they're also going to just be matter of fact about things so i I found that i don't know exactly why it was so compelling but that was the point when i was like i'm buying this i'm buying this book um which is great so and then if we go down a little bit further i just want to touch on a couple of things at the end here up and down euclid his slacks and shirts hanging from branches so euclid If there's one uh, proper noun in, you know, this first chunk of this novel, uh, you want to pay attention. I mean, there's another proper noun because Howard Young is a proper noun. But uh, Euclid, I believe, is the only is the only other one. And Euclid is a... uh, He is an ancient Greek uh, mathematician and importantly, he did geometry. I don't know if you remember Euclidean geometry. I loved geometry. I was not an algebra person, but I loved geometry and it was so satisfying to actually look at the definition of geometry. I actually did remember that Euclid had to do with geometry, but I did not know this excellent definition. It is a branch of math concerned with the relations of points, lines, surfaces, and solids. It's so beautiful. This idea that that they would live on Euclid Street. Well, I actually don't know. I mean, I assumed they lived on Euclid Street. At least they lived near enough for him to be scattering his, his clothing. You also wonder, I mean, there. You know, part of the question here is like, wait, why is this? Why, why is he taking off his clothes, or why is he carrying his clothes around and, and strewing them everywhere? But it's very important that this is happening on a street that is concerned with points and connections and lines. And you can remember some of the stuff about geometry. You know, it's about circles and it's about uh, rays. You know, where you have a point that goes off into nowhere. That's not a line. It's a ray, where it just is a little cute arrow meaning it's just going off on its thing. I mean, I think it's, it's a metaphor here that is very, or it's a symbol also, that I think is very effective. Again, very subtle, but very, uh, very effective. Okay, so quickly before we end this very, very first part here, um, I really also love, I love the December 26th thing once I went back and paid attention to it, but I, I also enjoy the fact that the, the entire novel is structured as this journal, essentially, that she is keeping. And it, it makes for um, some really interesting structuring, which we're going to look at soon. But I also really enjoy, frankly, how much white space there is on the page. It's a book that you read fairly quickly. And there are these really um, sort of delectable chunks that allow, again, for lots of nuance and lots of weaving together in terms of structure, but also for a very satisfying, um, very, it feels light, this book, which is good because it's about a topic that is very dark. Okay, so thank you for joining me for part one of our three-part lecture on Rachel Kong's incredible goodbye vitamin. Tune in for the second part when we will talk about uh, we're talking about structure and pacing. Okay, and maybe arc, maybe the character arc, depending on how far we get. So join me for the second part, and thank you for tuning in.